Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to today's episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. If you've been listening to this podcast over the last six weeks, you've heard me mention Sion. They are our first sponsor of 2022, and I really appreciate their support and belief in supporting the fraud fighting community. But I've also had a lot of people ask me questions about them. Because their presence hasn't been as known in the U.S. as a lot of other fraud technology companies, a lot of people have been asking me questions about them. My favorite has been a few people who have mentioned that they know me and they know that I wouldn't mention any specific company and wouldn't have them be a sponsor if I didn't believe in what they do and think that people need to learn about them if they're looking for new solutions. And that's completely true. But I also wanted to give you all a chance to learn a little bit more, especially because so many of our listeners are in the U.S., but there's a lot of people internationally as well. And they've built this business over the last several years, primarily in Europe and APAC, which is different and unique and also very intriguing to me because there's a lot of lack of knowledge around international fraud fighting, especially when it comes to verification services that I think a lot of people are interested in learning. And I hope everyone knows that is really my goal of this podcast is to cross-pollinate information across our industry. And this interview with Tomas and Bentz, the co-founders of Sion, is no exception. In addition to learning a little bit more about their company and their really unique origin story, we also got a chance to nerd out on current fraud issues, including differences in consumer behavior in countries such as China and other regions in APAC, as well as in European countries compared to the U.S., and how that can make international fraud fighting more challenging, but also more exciting. We all love a challenge, right? <laughs> I got to learn that they've observed 80% or sorry, they've observed that 87% of emails used for fraud have no previous history. I found that interesting, but we also talked a lot about this newer trend that I've mentioned on previous episodes of fraudsters identifying the victim's true email to make it look more legitimate. And they talk about how they believe that that can be worked around. And I thought that was really interesting. And then they also shared the concept of dynamic verification to reduce friction on legitimate users, but to have increased verification efforts on more suspicious orders. I want to share a little bit about who you're going to get to hear from today. Tomas and Benz co-founded Sion back in 2017 out of necessity. After starting out in crypto and quickly learning, they needed a better solution than what they found in the market. I first got to meet them back in 2017, and we talk about that briefly at the beginning when they first started their company, and I was impressed with their unique approach to fraud fighting. I honestly took the meeting as a courtesy, but I'm really glad I did and really enjoyed meeting them then. And it's been really kind of fun to watch from the sidelines as their company has quickly become one of the fastest growing fraud technology companies in the world. 
Sion is a trusted partner for fintech and e-com companies, including Revolut, Afterpay, and Patreon. It is through working with their partner companies that they've both developed a unique perspective on current fraud trends, common mistakes made by enterprise online companies, and vendor agnostic suggestions for how e-commerce can be enhanced while reducing risk exposure. This is not going to be your typical fluffy vendor conversation. I really wanted to make sure that there were some really good takeaways for people in the industry. They know so much about fraud and current fraud trends, and they shared a lot of them today. So I'm looking forward to you getting to know Tomas and Bents from Sion, and I'll let you listen in on that now. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, guys. Hey, thanks for inviting me. Thank so. Hey, thanks for having us. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for being here. So we actually got to meet in 2017 when you were in the States for a little while. I think the very first iteration of Sion. Yeah, I was there in San Francisco uh, for Card Not Present. We were knew that we were going to move it to San Francisco. And I put on my LinkedIn that I was going to be there. And Tomas reached out and I thought, well, I always like to learn about new stuff. And I've seen a lot of products and, and a lot of demos. And I really always thought you guys looked at things in a very different way. So it's been really fun for me to see Sion go from that in a coffee shop in San Francisco, a little demo on your computer to now being one of the fastest growing fraud technology companies in the world. Thank you. It was a pleasure to meet back then. And from our end, we have also learned a lot since then. So of course, the first version was somewhat of a beta, but yes. uh, then spending more time with merchants and as well as operators helped us a lot to learn and shape our product roadmap to provide the tool which helped them the most. Yeah. Also, also I think back then we were like five, six team members. Yeah. Uh, now if we're a hundred we're over 170 full-time employees just this week. So it's been quite a ride. That's amazing. Well, I saw the potential then. I guess I should have at least invested $20, right? I'm kidding. <laughs> That's probably all I had at the time. But but no, I, I really... So it doesn't surprise me, but I'm sure while it seems like overnight success to me, it's definitely not for you guys. You put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. But Something that struck me then is you were both pretty young. You were out of university and I was surprised that you had decided to take on this very large industry in a niche area that not many companies knew about, much less companies that originated in Hungary. So I'd love for you to share a little bit about what made you want to start a fraud prevention company. Sure. We were actually, Thomas and my friend, Thomas and myself, we were good university friends and we were actually building a crypto exchange initially. And after accepting credit card payments, we were faced with a bunch of chargebacks. So people were checking out with stolen identities and stolen credentials. And we quickly realized like, if we don't solve this issue, our, our business is going to burn to the ground. And we looked at the fraud prevention space back then. And from what we felt, everybody was aiming for enterprise sales. So long sales cycles, complex pricing structures, mm. having to sit through multiple discovery and sales calls in order to get a sneak peek of the product. So mm. we felt we weren't the ideal customer profile for these companies. And we said, okay, let's build our own in-house tool 
And then we pivoted towards building this full-on fraud prevention system. And then here we are today, fast forward a couple of years, we're now working to democratize fraud fighting, making our solution as easily accessible to as many fraud and risk managers out there in the simplest form possible, right? Putting our product first, opening up a free trial, pricing is completely transparent. It's on our website. Even our API documentation is public facing. So, so yeah, it's, we're, we're doing, we're selling in a way we would have been liked, we would have liked to be sold to back mm. then pretty much. Yeah. I think there are a lot of people in the enterprise space that are nodding their head as well. Same thing, right? Just to have several conversations, just to get a peek at even if it's going to work or not work. I think that a lot of the decisions you've made as a company, especially with the ones you mentioned, are so different than the traditional space. And that's not to say that the traditional space is wrong necessarily, but I think one thing that you mentioned is just the speed. When a company is faced with fraud and they don't have a solution, they don't necessarily have six to eight months for a sales cycle, right? And uh, in terms of the product itself, which I'm more involved in, what we have recognized is uh, these first few customers who have actually five chargebacks, they always had a you know weird email address, which turned out to be disposable ones. They had a IP address, which was a part of a torn node. Mm. So these are the small patterns we have recognized. And uh, we've been thinking back then to integrate an ID verification provider. But we have quickly realized when we spent some time on the dark web to learn from the fraudsters themselves that ID verification is actually not a bulletproof solution. You can buy for a couple of US dollars a stolen scan, and as well as it's a friction in an onboarding process. So this can lead to churn and decrease user experience. And uh, ID verification provider services can charge up to two US dollars for one verification. So our thesis was to build a tool which collects those data points which are left by the customer during onboarding or a payment, and namely the email address or the phone number. And thus was the IP and device, which are always collectable, friction-free, invisible manner. So what we try to do is enrich these data points and use machine learning to provide a risk assessment score. What we have learned is also that the best way to do it is to be industry agnostic. So we try to have any businesses out there, small or big, if they face fraud, they can integrate us. And it's 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 really straightforward for them to, to work with us as a, as a business. Well, and that was something I noticed back then, and I, I know now too, is that a lot of the things you did are the things like Bents had mentioned earlier, the things that you wish you saw in the market. For instance... You have the full suite of tools, but you can also use the modules for email or phone or IP or device as standalones as well. And I actually don't know if you guys know this, but a company I've worked with before provides fraud prevention services for for others. It's the simplest way. They're not necessarily, I'm not saying they're a fraud vendor, but they they do it. So they they use a lot of different tools. I joke that they have they're like Frankenstein. They've taken a little bit of this tool and a little bit of that tool and other things. And they reached out to me a few months ago and said, hey, I think you know the guys at Sion we really want to add them because even though we have all the other verification products, they're looking at things that we don't have access to. And they have a lot of verification abilities in APAC and Europe that the other companies are so much more centric around the free data that's available in the US because that's much easier. 
And so, but which is another reason why we have fraud, but that's all, you know, more fraud, but that's another story. And they've been blown away. Honestly, they, they had said previously, like, oh, I think we're good. Like there's not any other system we need. So this isn't meant to be fluffed, just setting a point of it provides by looking at things in a different way, by having things where you can do this standalone, that standalone. The other thing that you mentioned, Tomas, that I think is great. Well, there's two things. One is that not every business model and not every business vertical within e-commerce or fintech doesn't make sense for them to collect an ID, right? It just doesn't make sense. If I'm buying a pair of shoes, I, as a user, am not going to want to update, like send them a picture of my driver's license, for example. So it's really good that you've been able to build around that. That also can create some friction. But then again, there's also a ton of business models where it does make sense. So that's why it's great to allow people to take this, but not that and add to it, et cetera. And then the other thing that I was just going to mention is to your last point of having things vary by industry and be industry agnostic. I think that is from a machine learning perspective on the core solution. A lot of companies use similar, if not the same template for their models for all different types of companies. And as those companies grow, as fraud starts to evolve and shape targeting specific verticals in different ways, they're not as set up to work with the outliers. There's a few companies recently that have been impacted by that, where the outliers are seeing all these huge differences because it doesn't apply to them. The one size fits all machine learning doesn't apply to them. Yeah, I think it's very important to, you know, always tailor your fraud prevention strategy to your business. So Mm -hmm. there is not applicable solution, which is like, which helps any business. So for us, it's important that we do help our clients to fine tune their algorithm in order to cover the patterns which they which they see or have seen in the past, but also mm-hmm. we share as a knowledge. So those patterns are also, also like collected and, and provided as, as part of the system. So what we have uh, also recognized is it's really the on this note that you can make as good decisions as the data you have access to as a business. So the more data you have access to, the more things you collect of your customer and the journey they've been through, the referral URL, when they sign up, all the data points, as well as, you know, if you can collect the history of the pages visited, how much they spent on each page, and when they try to log in and log out, all these things have to be logged. So you can build an efficient machine learning model, but as well as the more external data you use, of course, the better the algorithm can get. So what we have recognized is really that fraudster steals a real person identity. They might have access to your date of birth, your social security number, and then they can also use those services which um, are being used by the, the merchants themselves. So they can use a middleman to check the credit score, to check the answers to your security questions. And then they can use this information to actually create a complete identity of you. And, uh, and, and what we are doing differently is really checking the, the footprint on more than 35 different providers, whether you are registered there, if yes, what, what the name are you using, and according to our own statistics, 87% of fraudulent email addresses doesn't have any presence in data breaches or any registration on any online platform. So this is a good indicator of upfront. If you check real-time an email address, you can see that if there's no history, it might be a brand new email address. And we know that fraudsters are aware of those technologies which are on the surface. So if business is asking for security questions, if they ask for an ID, they know what they have to get in order to bypass those measures. But if they don't know, you make their job harder. That's why we never 
recommend our clients as well to explain the reason why a transaction is being declined for the client uh, yes. because it might help them to circumvent those measures. So our data is really checking whether it could be a brand new email address because most fraudsters are smart enough to realize that they have to create a new email address for every attempt. They shouldn't use an email address which was part of a previous fraudulent attempt because mm. it might get stored somewhere. It might get blacklisted and yes. those you know systems which are sharing these Suspicious data pools are going to recognize those data points. Right. So they will always create a new one. They will have a new IP address. They might use those tools, which can help them to create a new browser ID, a new browser fingerprint. So we have actually ourselves acquired the top 15 of those browser types. And then we have built scripts, which can actually flag those browsers because mm. there's always some signal which can be captured. And, you know, when I hear these insights from our clients that, oh, you know, there are providers out there which have been collecting device data for 15 to 20 years. It should be so useful. But to be honest, every time you update your browser, you are going to have a new fingerprint because it's changing a lot of the different data points which had to have the entropy. So it's going to be a new one. And, and processors are also aware of these fingerprinting technologies. So what you as a merchant, I think, should do is, is, is always have a 360-degree view of the whole customer journey and then black box machine learning is actually very efficient, but also it doesn't help you to understand why a decision would be this or that. So actually, what we do is a white box type of machine learning. We suggest rules to our clients to decide whether they would like to enable this rule or not. And then, of course, they can see the accuracy of those rules. So we don't try to provide it as a black box service, only giving a thumbs up or thumbs down. What we do provide complex decision engine, which helps you to understand and fine tune your own algorithm based on the data we provide to them or also you have from third parties. That is a very full, complete explanation uh, and so many different directions I can go with that. But I think that the last thing you mentioned is something that's very important to people is fraud fighters that have been you know around for 10 plus years. We are very familiar with some of the challenges that rules-based linear rules-based systems can create. Essentially, they can create thresholds and fraudsters love thresholds, right? So they'll, as you said, they'll test and they'll, you know, sometimes they'll call in and say, why was my order canceled? And if somebody says, well, we looked at the email address and it hadn't been seen and da, da, da. Well, now they know, okay, we need to use an email address that has been seen before or whatever that threshold is. So we recognize the power of machine learning and eventually AI. But we also understand that, especially with SaaS tools, that every company has a little bit different situation. They know their customers better. They're looking at the data. So they should have some way to customize it for themselves, as well as to ensure that they are accepting the most amount of transactions and declining the right ones. That's really the ultimate holy grail and finding that balance. And so I think that's, I think that's the best way to, to approach machine learning is machine learning with models that are specific to industries. And then within those industries, each merchant gets to decide their specific things. That way there is no threshold because the machine learning is also throwing off the fraudster. They don't know exactly what to do. And to your point, our ultimate goal as fraud fighters for online commerce is to just make it too expensive and too time consuming for the bad guys to take advantage of our our systems and our, our companies. So that's why having those dynamic systems and looking at all of those things was so important. The 
piece around 87% of fraudulent email addresses have no history is fascinating to me, especially because over the last few months, more retailers have been noticing that fraudsters are using the email address that is attached to the cardholder or attached to the original account holder. They don't have access to that email, but they're using it in the order form. So it looks more verifiable. And for companies that put a lot of weight in this email address has been seen with this address before, or put a lot of weight in, oh, we've seen this before. They've been passing those orders and they've turned into chargebacks. So I, I guess I'd be curious to you what you what your advice is to those companies that are having that problem. I think it would maybe applicable to retailers who does sell physical goods, because in mm-hmm. that case, you can check on the website, usually the order history, the order status. You don't have to access the email address itself. And what fraudsters usually are using those service providers, which actually spam email addresses. So you can pay like $1 and you can enter an email address on this dark web service. And they send you like 100 email address for a, a specific time frame. So it will get like polluted in your inbox. So you cannot find those, those emails. In terms of virtual good sellers, of course, you know, since as a customer, you would receive the good in, in, an, in that case, it's not very doable to not to have access to the email address. And it's, it's always tricky because in terms of physical goods, you have a bit of time period to ship out the goods. So if the real card holder recognize the transaction and if you can stop sending out the product, then it's actually not so risky. Well, when we look at virtual goods, that's what really is desired by fraudsters because they don't have to have a drop to receive goods. They can or they can resell. We see so many patterns. Fraudsters are creating like eBay ads as well and shipping goods directly to the to the end user. It's the most lucrative way of uh, doing the physical good related fraud. And fraudsters are really smart, to be honest. So they always will find a way to loop in middlemen and create like fake job posts to actually recruit people and use their address or drop without their knowledge because they might act as a charity business or things like that. It's it's very complex. And I think the reason why you have to take into consideration as well as the IP, the address, the, the phone number, the history of the customer, looking at you know if there is any connected accounts, it's really time consuming. So if you are like a, a small business who, who is not involved uh, as their core competence by building for building out a product for for prevention, it might make sense to use a, an external party and not build something in-house. But I think what's really good is many businesses actually are growing fast. So they see a lot of fraudulent patterns, which is of course not so good, but at least this is what they can use as training model to create a, an algorithm, which then can uh, flag those suspicious attempts. So the upside of also working with a provider is that they can provide you an algorithm which was already trained on a number of merchants' data. Yeah, that's really interesting because to your point, working with a partner that, and and this is true with a lot of fraud technology partners, is that they have that 10,000 foot view. And I know I definitely appreciate having that 10,000 foot view as well, just as a consultant, but being able to know, okay, this algorithm worked for this company that had this problem before this is going to help, et cetera. Yeah. So to your point, these are happening specifically right now. A lot of physical goods companies are seeing them. However, some digital delivery, like in travel and event ticketing is, is starting to see this as well. And there is some benefit because the fraudster is using 
the real person's email, that person may say, I didn't make this purchase. They get the order confirmation, et cetera. However, I'm glad that you mentioned that there are all kinds of fraud as a service services and one, and I know we're going to talk about them a little bit more in a couple of minutes, but one of them is you can pay a very nominal amount to have a ton of spam emails point to be sent to one email in tandem with exactly the same time that you're placing the order. So if someone stole my email and they're using it on an order using my credit card to look most legit, then they will set that up so that as soon as they place confirm order, there's already been some spam email sent and then a whole bunch more. So I'm looking at my inbox going, oh my gosh, what happened? And I just delete all of them, hopefully including the order confirmation from the merchant. And often these are for high dollar, but they're, we're not seeing this as much for the lower dollar because it does take some work for them to say, well, what is, okay, I have this credit card for Carice Hendrick. What is her legitimate email address? What is the email address that she uses on email orders and not for her business? Because that's different too, those kind of things. But it is just, to me, it's an example of the adaption that fraudsters have done when understanding the types of tools that merchants use. And so it's important to be nimble and have multiple layers so that they might have that piece figured out, but they don't have the device or the IP or all the other pieces. So I think that we're obviously aligned there. No big surprise. So I mentioned that you've spent the last several years primarily focusing on merchants in the EU and APAC and that you are you know, now expanding into the US, but that's a lot of times we see the opposite. We see fraud prevention technology companies starting on the US in part because there's more fraud here, but also because there's a lot more data about the users. So I'm curious to know what the reason was behind starting in the EU and APAC. And that's not to say that you don't have merchants that are based in Europe that have U.S. websites or that you don't work with U.S. merchants because you do, but just as far as your your company strategy and the core companies, you really perfected understanding data verification and users in APAC and EU, which are often regions that kind of are a little more confusing or challenging to those of us that are used to U.S. fraud fighting. Sure. We were Hungarian friends, right? We met at university here in Budapest and we're proud of that. We're proud to be a Hungarian company as well. And it has its advantages building a startup out of this region, right? So there's a really good tech talent pool and we're super happy to have been able to tap into that. Now, on the other hand, our operating expenses could be kept at a reasonable level for a very long time. And they still are because about 90% of our headcount is based out of Budapest. And especially when you're in that bootstrapping or semi-bootstrapping phase in the early life of a startup, you really do have to watch your costs. And I think that was a massive advantage, even compared to our competition, that we were based out of Budapest and we were able to tap into that talent pool and keep our costs down. And then it was sort of natural to focus on the European market for us, not stepping into the US market with the lack of resources was also sort of a natural thing for us because competition is really high there. We know fraud rates are high, especially credit card fraud is a massive issue because I think online commerce has its roots just based out of there. And that part of the world, people are not as resistant to submitting their details uh, in various spots because you're used to paying online. Meanwhile, 
in Germany, for example, people are super resistant to buying. They only buy things on Amazon, basically, yeah. not on any sites that they wouldn't trust. So we didn't step into the U.S. market up until one and a half years ago is when we started focusing initially. And now post Series A, heading towards Series B, we do feel like we're we're setting our troops there. We're going to be scaling up over the next 12 months and we're going to be focusing on actually getting more substantial footprint in the U.S. And yeah, for example, Patreon, we've already won over, which is a massive name, right? So that's that's amazing. Yeah, I have been to their office a few times pre-COVID, obviously. <laughs> Actually, that was my last my last trip prior to the shutdown, but that's a whole other thing. But yeah, I think they are an example of a company that needs to be on the cutting edge of having newer technology because they are digital goods and they have a lot of very unique issues as being a marketplace for content creators. So uh, I, when I saw that, I wasn't surprised, but that was a good fit. So coming from a fraud fighting perspective, as I mentioned, there's just a lot of people in the U.S. that when their company expands to EU, APAC, specific regions in APAC like China and you know South Korea and others, they really struggle. And honestly, I've worked with a company over the last few months that's really struggling with well, what even is good consumer behavior in China? Because to your point, Vince, a lot of people, every region, I think it's easy for Americans to think that everybody everybody is a consumer like them or that everyone's like them. And there are so many differences by region. I've certainly, I used to say that wanting to pay in installments was strictly a Brazil thing, but now with BNPL, obviously that's a US thing too. But in other ways, there's just so many nuances per region. And a lot of people struggle in the US to understand what's normal and what is an outlier in each of these regions of Europe, as well as APAC. So What are some things that you've learned about consumers in in these spaces? What are some things that could be helpful to, I would say, 80% of my listeners are in the U.S., 20%. I've got pockets in Israel and Australia and EU and a few in Africa that do listen. So I know that would be interesting for people to to hear some highlights. Yeah. when, When we initially stepped into the APAC region or started generating revenue. Actually, I was heading up business development. I am now in day-to-day operations and Jimmy Fong, our commercial officer, is a much better salesman than I am. But what was shocking to me was that in, in the APAC region, pretty much mobile wallet and mobile transactions are the highest in terms of penetration in all over the world, right? So everybody basically has a mobile phone and they may not be financially included in like the classical brick and mortar banking ecosystem, but they are included in in mobile payments and mobile wallet usage. Now, in the meantime, in a lot of these regions, you have a lack of means of identity verification due to bureaucratic and administrative reasons, right? So maybe you're born somewhere and you grow up, you get a mobile phone, but you may not have an ID card. So then if you want to verify yourself online, how are you going to do that, right? And micro lending in these regions is actually a booming industry. So if you want to apply for, for a loan of like $30, $40, because you're, it's the end of the month and you're running low on cash, how are you going to do that? How, how's that company going to verify your credit score? Well, they're going to rely on alternative data, right? So uh, they're going to look at your digital footprint. 
And actually, these what Tamash has been building on the email address, phone number verification, device data, IP address lookup, they're all very valuable assets when it comes to identifying these consumers out there. And that was a massive uh, sort of region for us. And it still is. It's a substantial chunk of our revenue stream comes from the APAC region. To add here, uh, I think fraudsters are fraudsters everywhere. So they are going to reuse something at some point. So the internet service provider might be you know, the same for the attempts. The email domain might be the same. There might be the same number of you know, numbers in the email handle. And if you combine all this, you can you know, create a rule which can then flag those accounts and you can enable dynamic verification to ask for more information from those potentially bad actors. So I think the mindset is, is really like if they acquire a large set of stolen credit card numbers, and you know, in Europe, after the PSD2, now many banks doesn't face problems given the two-factor authentication of a credit right. card fraud. So even fraudsters switch to those regions where it's still not live any type of 2FA. So mm-hmm. there is no push notification, there is no SMS, there is just you know, a credit card number which they can reuse. And, and in those regions, the same way they can acquire those numbers of credit cards, for example, they can reuse in large amounts to try to push through those transactions. But of course, fraudsters are lazy. They want to have the highest profit in the shortest time. So what they will do is they start to try out things. You have to learn what they've did and what they've done, and then build out models that can flag those patterns and new transactions. And if they, even if they change something, you can have a, a threshold which would still block block those attempts. And of course, most businesses always try to be as global as possible in order to attract as many customers as they can. But in many cases, if you block, for example, a specific city from a specific country, it might not result for you direct losses if you do it only for a week or so, because mm-hmm. fraudsters will not know like you have blocked you know, a, right. a city based on the IP, but they might not think about trying it again a week later. Fraudsters usually always look for new patterns that they won't use parts if they realize that it was blocked. So they always change small things to create a new profile and mm-hmm. then stay under the radar but as I said, they are lazy. So yes. they are they're creatures of habit. Yeah, they are always trying different ways to scale up their operation. Mm, absolutely right. And they may not know that by changing the device, they still have the same first five digits of the IP, for example. So you're looking for what did exactly. they what did they forget? Yeah, a good point of this. If it's good you mentioned the subnet thing. So mm. there are more and more mobile proxy providers. Mm-hmm. Um, Essentially, what they do is they set up a rack of mobile modems, like 4G, 5G modems with Unix SIM cards, and they resell as a proxy. So every two minutes, they reconnect to the network to have a new IP. But if if they're using the same carrier and if they are in the same location, which is the case, then, as you said, a specific number of the first few digits will remain and only the last subnet changes usually. So that's very, very important to watch out for. Yeah, it's something that several people are 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 noticing now in looking at this is oh the only thing that all these have in common is they're adding fictitious apartment numbers at the end of the street address and they have the first five digits of the ip i'm on a 
a WhatsApp group with several international retailers where uh, they're sharing information like this daily. And so that's knowing that that's something that's being used right now and something that obviously you would pay attention to, especially from that global perspective of, to your point, fraudsters are international, but they're often targeting U.S. companies because U.S. doesn't have PSD2. They don't have 3DS requirements. There is so much free data out there. They probably know just as much about myself as I do, or just all those things. Hopefully not, because I think being in the industry that we're in, we're a little more cautious, but there's just a lot more of that. And something also that I was thinking of is just how unique, I guess what I wanted to ask is, as you're looking at all these dynamic things of fraudsters in different regions, I've started to notice, okay, Eastern European uh, fraudsters like in Ukraine or Russia, they really like to do the reshipper MO, as you mentioned before, where they'll put a work from home scam or a romance scam. And, or often these days, they're just offering straight up money for people. They're just saying on Telegram, hey, we'll pay $500 for a New York address for two weeks. And people don't really know what they're doing, but they don't care. They're like, okay, probably nothing that's going to come back on me. Now, if they ever want to purchase something again online, they should probably think about that to be shipped to their house, but that's another story. And so that's something that Eastern European fraudsters do. But then we've got Vietnamese fraudsters that they have a similar but different. They do ship to residential addresses, but often they're people that they know or family members that are connected to Vietnam. Like I'm just starting to see all these international MOs of you know Latin America. Fraudsters prefer freight forwarders, for example, often in Miami. And those are generalizations. Obviously, there are you know, a lot of nuances to this. But if you started to pick that up too, where you're like, oh, okay, this. MO looks like it's tied to someone in Ukraine or tied to Vietnam or Nigeria or wherever. Fraud is everywhere. There's also US fraudsters too. So <laughs> I've noticed the US guys, they really just like to game the system. They don't even need a stolen credit card. They'll just say they didn't get it or something like that. <laughs> they're they're the laziest. <laughs> yeah. Friendly fraud. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, not yeah. certainly run. Yeah, we recognize the same thing. The same groups are like, what I see is like banking fraud is a lot of time originating from, from Vietnam. We have seen patterns when they actually have recreated a bank login site and they have scraped real time based on the data which they entered, like the login and password, the original bank site. And then the same way they have asked from the victim the one time passcode, which they gained by also accessing the site. So they just take the password, use it to log in, and that's it, they were in. They actually were really smart because they have opened uh, a new mobile app account. So from that moment, they didn't have to do any 2FA. So it's, you know, like amazing, like how how tricky and, and how much work they put into to have some financial gain. But in the end, like the money has to go out somewhere. And in my opinion, that's what crypto has really changed because crypto is the first digital asset which helps fraudsters actually to hide and pay for hide their money and also pay for goods and services. Before that, there were some ways of payments, but mainly it was like the, the Russian method, like the Kiwi wallet and all this, but Bitcoin and Monero changed everything. You're absolutely right. And 
Ben's mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation that this really Sion came out of you guys first starting to have a crypto company. And so and last week I spoke with Matt Vega at Candy Digital about fraud fighting for an NFT marketplace. I know there's just a lot of questions. I know you are fielding and, and working with several companies in NFT and crypto. What are a few, but there's also a lot of e-commerce brands that are quietly confiding in me that this is on their roadmap. And so they're asking me what they need to know. And so what are a few things that e-commerce companies that have plans to add NFTs to their portfolio need to think about that they haven't had to consider in a traditional e-commerce? I think one point should be taken into account is what we have discussed that probably sending out the goods via email or just the form of the payment also means that the the form of receiving the goods will be probably digital too. So your NFT via post. But I think in terms of NFTs, reseller fraud. So when like actually they look for buyers instantly for your goods, it's, it's quite dominant because if your identity gets registered in the blockchain, then you might you might be visible. But as well as if you already have a buyer and you know what you have to gain, you will be an opportunistic fraudster. So you just you know go for that item, which already you have a buy, buyer for. And the buyer might not know that you actually are acquiring the goods with a stolen card number. And I think since it's really like crypto is said, the essentially cash for fraudsters, digital cash, always going to be targeted by fraudsters. They will find a way to turn fiat money to crypto money and and whatever is in between the two is going to be attracted for uh, attracting for fraudsters so so i think that it requires like the best way to do it in order to ensure a good user experience and a low churn is to enable this thing called dynamic friction so i think what businesses should do is verify the users in in first in a friction free way in an invisible way and then if there is a suspicion because something happens if the money would or the nft would leave their system that's the point until when they should delay any type of friction full verification, such as identification, unless, of course, there's a compliance or regulatory reason to do so. But I think it's very hard to turn around and, and, and you know, it's irre- irreversible, essentially. So once you send your NFT or crypto, it's gone. It's not yours anymore. So that's the main point. And this is also why fraudsters love it so much. Absolutely. And I think that's something that we talked about a lot last week with Matt was just how different you have to... I don't think many of us in e-commerce really have... I think we've taken for granted the fact that if something is stolen, if mileage points are stolen from someone's account, we can reapply those. Same with gift cards, same with digital goods and gaming. But when it comes to crypto and NFT, no, once it's gone, it's gone. But it's also creating really interesting uh, user expectations from the crypto market that is legitimate, is where they want to only do business with companies that they know, like, and trust, and that they know they can trust them because of that factor, that once it's gone, it's gone. Once somebody gets their their email and commits account takeover, it's gone. There's no replicating. There's no pulling it back and adding it and et cetera. So I'm hopeful And I'm saying this as someone in the U.S. that doesn't always have a lot of hope around consumers wanting more secure and and taking their own security in their own hands. But I am hopeful that at least those that are involved in crypto and NFT, though there are also some very painful, expensive lessons being learned to create that need for trust with commerce because they're so used to just being able to call their bank and giving their money back uh, in traditional e-com that I'm hopeful that that's going to change 
customer just their own due diligence and their own responsibility in you know participating in safe commerce. And also on NFTs in the new world of metaverse, everything will be an NFT, right? Like every good will be saved as a digital asset mm-hmm. and it can be traded. You can have your own items as you know in the real world, you can buy goods and, and you can store in your living room or in house. Uh, the same way in the metaverse, what businesses will do is sell items which you can hold uh, onto. So like you can have items. And I think this is also opening up new channels for fraudsters. They will find new ways to impersonate people, oh, yeah. to trick people into believing something, to trick in people into buying something. And in, in reality, they don't get anything. And it will be the wide west of, of fraud for a while. I think when we will see more actual, but when, when it, this will be a reality, because it's still not like uh, a widely used thing. But as, I think as soon as it will get adopted by the masses, fraudsters, the same way we switch to instead of receiving physical goods, they will just focus more on NFTs and, and getting things done in the metaverse because then it's much safer to hide behind a proxy or hide behind the Tor network or, or a VPN. And, and it's even easier to just bypass those measures because it will be fully digital. You don't have to walk to a store or anything like that. Yeah, that is definitely what I think of too, especially as fraudsters are such early adopters of new technology, whether it's fintech. I mean, they were the first adopters of crypto and and the list goes on and on that the metaverse is probably going, I've actually said the wild, wild west of fraud for a while. I know that there are a lot of people thinking about this in a bigger way at meta. I I was going to say Facebook, but I guess they're no longer, but at the same time, we often find that the speed to market will often be more outweighed than let's take a step back and think about risks. And so oftentimes newer technology is going to learn about those risks in real time, unfortunately. And that's when we get the, the wild west. But it is really good to start thinking about that now so that you know we we can at least be aware and as e-commerce companies are saying, hey, we're going to join the metaverse. Well, have you thought about this, 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 and all the other things? And I'm sure in a way you're already having those conversations with some of your clients or at least thinking about it in a bigger way. So so just kind of wrapping up a little bit, but if you had to pick just one or two pieces of advice for fraud fighters in e-commerce and fintech in 2022, what would it be? I mean, I know it varies so much by vertical and industry and all of that, but we're seeing a lot of changes in the last few years of fraudster behavior and how they're moving from one person having to be good at everything to now this fraud as a service where you can buy accounts that are already post KYC or to process fake ID. And you you listed a lot of those earlier, earlier on, Tomas. So just knowing that and how much we're seeing fraud change, what is some p- advice that you would provide to people that are fighting fraud now? I think one of one of them which Tomas has touched upon, and I'm a big fan of that as well, is there's many, there's many tools out there, many amazing tools. You can pretty much manage your risk in from multiple aspects right you can you have id verification you have two-factor authentication you've got the digital footprint analysis so a key takeaway is that you should utilize these tools and you should be approaching the whole question of fraud management from a multi-stack sort of perspective you should be thinking at what point what tool you can use 
So that's that's the dynamic friction which Thomas has been pointing towards, and I'm a big advocate of that as well. Obviously, we're co-founders, so that's no surprise, right? On the other hand, my second go-to suggestion is I want to see a better community from the fraud fighters. I feel there's a lot of competition between companies and that that mindset is not the right way to tackle the whole issue. And, and the reason why fraudsters are outsmarting is because they're sharing their ideas openly on forums, right? And and that's that that should be the other way around. So fraud fighters and risk and fraud managers should be, I think they should be coming together, sharing what they're seeing in terms of trends, sharing statistics, sharing new ideas. And I think there should be a better community out there. And we should be focusing on raising awareness to a better extent. Yep. So so that's that's one aspect of it. That is definitely speaking my language, as you know. I have a goal of of scaling a lot of the, the work I've done with groups of retailers in specific industries on a bigger level because I believe the exact same thing. The the fact that and, and I mean my listeners have heard me say this a million times, but fraudsters don't have to ask for budget. They don't have to run things by policy or privacy or ask their legal team if they can share something or anything like that. And so they're able to just share whatever and it's the speed of light. And that is why they're so successful. We're also seeing fraud far expand beyond payment fraud to so many other pieces and all of those. It's it's critical to have us talk to each other. It's just that's the only way we'll ever learn. So I'm, that's something I can talk about for hours and and have hopes and plans of building something like that based on what the fraud fighter community has been asking for. That's not to say there aren't options and, and great groups out there already, but I think that there always can be more and different and better until or unless we ever eradicate this, right? As long as they continue to evolve and innovate, we need to be sharing with each other. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think I think certain industries are doing quite well. Like yeah. for example, the travel industry, mm-hmm. they're they're out there sharing with one another their the trends and whatnot and the new fraud rings that they've identified and so on. But meanwhile, in other industries, I see that they're so their mindset is so based on competition that they're not willing to open up about this to other well, companies. And there definitely are some very big tech companies that see risk as a competitive advantage. Yeah. I mean, when I'm consulting with them, absolutely, that is something that I add. But at the same and but collaborating doesn't mean sharing all your metrics and all the specifics, right? There's information yeah. sharing as yeah. well as data. And so you don't have to do that. You can still say, well, we saw this or that because it's not company versus company. It's all the companies against the fraudsters. At least that's how it should be in my perfect utopia. Yeah. <laughs> I can just echo all yeah. this. And my two thoughts will be, one of them is feel free to learn from fraudsters. So feel free to join Telegram mm-hmm. groups you know, yes. and, and search for your own brand. To see what services and goods are being sold mm-hmm. or asked for. And if you have enough data, which you have collected during the customer journey who you are working with, probably if you go for it, you can match with actual patterns and then you can just flag those transactions which matches with those patterns. And if there is no high number of false positives and, and negatives, like it's the good approach. The other suggestion would be is to build out a middleware which can be easily help you to connect multiple fraud prevention solutions. So integration is always a headache, but if you have a middleware, 
which has the data set, which you can just send to multiple providers. And then you can have a good benchmark to each other and see if you run them silently, you can measure how efficient are they to each other. And then you can pick the best one for your business. Don't feel scared to do that because if they are uh, an upfront business, they might offer a free trial. They might not ask for huge integration fees. So it's easy to switch if you have that middleware built out. And if you have some free time on your hand, and if you're already in that Telegram group, share some false information with the fraudsters. Yeah, so, <laughs> so yeah. yeah it, it's funny. There's a lot of hesitation, uh, at least on the merchant side of joining Telegram. And so, and, and I had that as well, but as long as you don't post anything, they, they're, I'm a lurker on Telegram is what I say. However, if you want to up-level your game, absolutely. You can say, oh, this company is wide open or it's not. They're prosecuting everybody and maybe they're not, but that's enough oftentimes to get a lot of them to scurry over to someone else to your point. But it's, and it's just kind of fun, right? To have a little bit, just a little yeah. bit of shot and fraud, a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> but I am big on that as well. And oftentimes I, I've learned a lot from reverse engineering, what fraudsters are saying on telegram, specifically on the refund fraud problem, learning what what they react to and what their definite you know, game plan is. So they have a specific MO, but then when a merchant puts X in place, then they do Y. And then I've really studied this cat and mouse game over the last two years, thanks to Telegram. So there are some benefits to fraudsters being open is that now they, ha- they don't feel like they need to be on tour or they feel like it's too much work or there's too much law enforcement there. And so they just, and there's just not as much fear on their part. So they're open shares. So that is one benefit to them being better at collaboration than us, but definitely not, (laughs) not enough to make us sit back and not do anything. We are at time and I know you both are so busy and I appreciate you staying up a little later since I'm on the West Coast in the US, but I want to thank you for your time for just how much you enrich the fraud industry with your blogs and information. I always find them fascinating and and new perspectives and selfishly. Thank you for being the first sponsors of the fraudology podcast for 2022. It means a lot. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. All mine. Pleasure is all mine. Well, thanks so much. I will add ways to get in touch with each of you as well as to learn more about Sion in the show notes. And we'll talk to you soon. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.